Hello and welcome again to CH Network Presents, where we have conversations about the kinds of questions that people wrestle with when they're exploring the Catholic Church and trying to figure out whether or not they're supposed to be a part of it. I'm Matt Swaim. I'm the uh, Director of Outreach for the Coming Home Network. And if you're somebody who's dealing with issues like the ones that we're going to be discussing today, which have to do with Pentecostalism, and of course, we're right around Pentecost, so I had to get some Pentecostals on, um, please do reach us out reach out to us um, at chnetwork.org. And if you're looking for a community of people who are talking about these things together, uh, please check out our free online community as well. That's community.chnetwork.org. And to keep all this going, we do need your support. So if you're able to, please do go to chnetwork.org and click on that donate button as well to keep it rolling. All right, that's the housekeeping stuff. And so just as a heads up, uh, you may not hear another peep from me for the rest of this program because I have taken a great risk in inviting two former Pentecostal preachers who are now both Catholic laymen onto the show. I might not get another word in edgewise today, but these are two really awesome guys. I'm so excited to get them together, uh, first of all. Um, if you want to hear their full stories, they've both been on the journey home, so check out that. But we've got Kenny Burchard, who is Director of Development for the Coming Home Network, and Marcus Peter, who is President and Director of Biblical Theology for the St. Peter Institute. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank Great you, Matt. to be here. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, I'm so pumped to get you together uh, for so many reasons, but uh, let's start by just a little bit of backdrop um, so then we can get into the issues. Uh, I'll start with you first, Marcus. Uh, when you began to have your Christian awakening, and you had a whole bunch of things going on in your world before that happened, what was it that drew you specifically to Pentecostal expressions of Christianity? So it all started, uh, as you would remember, Matt, I've mentioned this, it all started with the fact that I was a militant atheist. I was brought up with a very secular, science-heavy education, and uh, became an empiricist, a very uh, anthropological materialist, very influenced by the thought of people like Feuerbach and Nietzsche and Kant and Descartes. And I, I I just, you know, went around preaching the fact that God doesn't exist simply because empirical science says so. And then I was conned into going, and I say conned in a very loving way, into going to this charismatic prayer meeting. And I think those people were praying for me. They, they said, you know, you don't have to believe in what we do. Just come and play the bass. Uh, that's all we need. We need a bassist. And uh, I played the bass. So I said, yes, okay, I'll, I'll do that. I don't, have, I don't have anything to do on Tuesday nights. I think they must have been praying for me because on May the 20th, 2008, that was my first uh, charismatic prayer meeting of any sort. And I had this overnight encounter with the love of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit flooded my life in such a profound way that he compelled me to the study of Scripture and to want to tell people about him. So I then started, I became this Bible-taughting Christian, but I didn't know what church I belonged to. I'd left my parents' Catholic church by then. And as I was traveling and, and walking around talking to people about Jesus, doing this in my university, the Assemblies of God members in my university, they smelt blood. And, and you know, like, like, like sharks drawn to a dying seal, they, they just they zeroed in on me. Because they, they saw this Christian who was traveling around with the Bible, and they were like, we want this guy. So they were the ones who took me under their wing. And that, that was my encounter of uh, the Assemblies of God and Pentecostalism, uh, and they shared my zeal for the Bible as the inspired Word of God and the proclamation of the Word of God as life-giving and the impetus of telling people about Jesus. And then they also taught me how to uh, lead uh, praise music. They taught me how to play different uh, instruments, and, and I just went forth as a preacher from that point on. So that's pretty exciting. Um, and... Uh I want everybody to kind of get that sort of picture of how, how this happened, because what you didn't say is, well, you know, my denomination decided they were going to send me to a seminary and then get my Master's of Divinity before I could become a youth minister, then an associate pastor, then go out and preach the Word. No, I mean, they just threw you oh, in, they, buddy. They threw me in. Oh, yeah, <laughs> so. the, the Holy Spirit just inspired me. It, it was like the, the, the floodgates burst open, and every bit of Scripture I'd ever heard throughout my whole life came flooding back. And they saw that, and they immediately put me into evangelization. Now, they did tell me that they were willing to pay for me to send me to, uh, to, to get my master's in divinity in seminary for me to become a full pastor with them. And, and that was what I was discerning. So that was going to be the next step. But there was a small group of us who were preachers, who were youth preachers, and, and that's what we did. 
All right, so we'll pause you there and catch Kenny Burchard up to speed. So I believe, if I recall correctly, you got converted um, by some people who were actually trying to convert Mormons and caught you in their net. But uh, how did you ended up? <laughs> how did you end up with the Pentecostals? Yeah, it's a really interesting story. Um, you know, shortly after. Uh, I, I was one of those guys that you, every street evangelist's dream, right? You witness to a kid on the street, and then he becomes a Christian. And that's how I became a Christian. I became a Christian through a street evangelism event in Salt Lake City, Utah in 1986, and heard a very simple presentation of Jesus and the gospel that you might hear from any uh, street witnessing person for spiritual laws, John 3.16, all of that kind of stuff. And a couple days later, I was 17 years old. I was sitting on the hood of my car in front of my karate teacher's house, actually. I had just gone to him and said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be out here on the hood of my car praying and inviting Jesus into my life. And he, he had something to do with, with all that as well. And while I was sitting out there, not being a church kid at all, not growing up in a religious home at all, I was 17. I was sitting on the hood of my car I said a prayer, you know, Jesus, I'll follow you for the rest of my life. I don't understand everything, but I give my life to you. Nobody was leading me in a sinner's prayer. I'd never heard that language before. It was just me calling out to God on the hood of my car as a 17-year-old non-religious kid in the seat of Mormonism. And immediately when I finished, you know, that prayer, I had this overwhelming kind of impending sense of, um, I don't even know what to call it, but just overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit. I started crying, and then this something started coming out of my mouth. Um, I, I started having a kind of an episode of what I would now call spiritual language. Um, the, the old Pentecostal or traditional Pentecostal language for that is speaking in tongues. I didn't know what it was at the time because, again, no context, no prejudice, wasn't copying anybody that I'd seen growing up all my life. Is, is, you know, having been a Pentecostal preacher, I saw a lot of that. Um, but it happened to me spontaneously and outside of the Pentecostal context, and I had this thing. And for the next two days, while I would be driving around in my in my car as a teenager, it would happen again. I'd just be alone, and it would happen again where I'd have this effusive kind of language that I would just start praying and crying. And finally, after a couple of days, my karate teacher asked me, how are you doing now? You know that you've accepted the Lord. I said, oh, it's incredible. But this thing is happening to me. I don't understand it. He said, well, what, what do you mean? And I explained it to him. And he said, oh, you're praying in tongues. <laughs> I said, I'm, I'm, I'm what? He said, yeah, just keep doing it. Just keep doing it. I said, okay. And that became a part of my life for 33 years. And when I, so when I started looking for a church, I had to go to one in my mind that would embrace this thing that was happening to me. And I ended up in the Vineyard Christian Fellowship in Salt Lake City, Utah. And the first time that I ever went to church there, it was, uh, they were renting a Seventh-day Adventist church building. First time I ever went to church there, I was singing, I was brand new, I didn't know anything, and somebody behind me started doing what I had heard myself doing, and I said, that's it, that's the thing, that's the thing I do, that lady's doing the thing I do, yay, I, you know, I'm home, I found my tribe, and of course, you know, the... Uh, vineyard folks, uh, for those who are in the know, are kind of like in a third wave of uh, North American um, Pentecostal charismatic expressions. But that was my tribe, as it were. And so I ended up in, in the vineyard and then did some time on staff at an Assemblies of God church and ultimately ended up in the Foursquare denomination, which is a traditionally Pentecostal uh, denomination. But my first sort of brush with Pentecostalism, you could say, was with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> the way Pentecostals you, think it's supposed to I go. hope you never sold that car. So uh, <laughs> Actually, I, I did, but that's a story for another time. <laughs> another episode of CH Network Presents, we will there, dig into a story the, the life of that, that car and how many right. conversions that car was a part of. Um, so yeah. uh, I want to get into some like doctrinal stuff. I, hopefully there's some Pentecostals who came in here looking for a fight. You know, because what they saw this video was 
was called and have already hopefully their defenses are down and they realize that this is uh you know, this is these are very real experiences that you had oh, right yeah. with with very Christ real. coming into your life the Holy Spirit speaking to you in a, in a very real way and you've never stopped valuing that and we're gonna get into absolutely um, into more of how that played out over time but while I've got you I you know you mentioned speaking your own prayer language but I think within certain denominations people have language and vocabulary that's not necessarily prayer language and I'm wondering if if there's something that's part of your I'll start with you Marcus. Is there anything that's part of your Pentecostal experience, either like a word, like a vocabulary word, or like an in-phrase, or like maybe a personality or a song or an experience that only another Pentecostal would possibly understand? <laughs> okay, so uh, pardon me if I don't mention the names of the churches, that the, the, the groups that I belong to yet. I just, I, I owe them so much, and I never want to besmirch them. Uh, but I will tell you this, I, I was preaching and doing ministry with two churches, and one of them, for some reason, the pastor said, if you want your tongues to take off, uh, you start with saying the words Abba and just keep repeating Abba, Abba. So, so there were some people, like when, when the entire assembly were praying in tongues, these, they'd, they'd be you know, beside me, in front of me, and all they were doing was just repeating Abba profusely, and, and that was claimed to have been this, this, this gift of spiritual locution. And uh, the, the fact of the matter is, you know, deeper studying of scripture, uh, in, in hindsight, that probably some some level of catechesis needs polishing up there, uh, but you know I also want to uh, <laughs> also want to share a couple of things that are very similar to what happened to Kenny. So when the Holy Spirit came into my life, I had never picked up the Bible until that day. Yeah, I had never picked up the Bible. Uh, it, it was not something that made sense to me. The, the the narrative didn't make sense. The wording didn't make sense. The day the Holy Spirit came into my life, that day onwards from uh, so I went to bed three a.m. He woke me up, and from that day on until December of that year when I begged for the experience to stop because I needed to sleep. Every day at 3 a.m., he would wake me up and I'd go downstairs like I knew what I was doing and he'd lead me to pick up my family Bible and I, I just start reading and I started memorizing scripture. Uh, incidentally, I have a black belt in Taekwondo and my former karate master is also a, a, a Protestant See, preacher. I did so. not plan this connection. I just need you guys <laughs> to know I, this was not part of the plan. This has just kind of come out much like the beginnings of your story. If there's just the connections that we had no idea. The Holy Spirit's just moving all kinds of levels here. He truly is. He truly is. Because, um, you know, as, as you were talking, Kenny, uh, that night that I had not been told that Jesus wanted a personal relationship with me. I hadn't even been told that this was something that was possible. I, I, I just didn't know that Jesus wanted a personal relationship with me. But that day when the Holy Spirit came into my life, for the first time in my life, like I knew what I was doing, just like you, I said my first prayer of faith. And it was very much the sinner's prayer, except I'd never heard it before. And, and my words were very similar. You know, Lord, I know now you're real. I'm done living like this. Take me entirely and use me for the glory of your name or leave me to die. And and I, I know those are very extreme words, but that's because he, he hit me so powerfully, right? So going back to your question, Matt, is there a vocabulary? Uh, my pastors throw, threw around the word covenant a lot. You know, the Father has a covenantal love for you. I don't think they understood what it really meant. But like, now that I'm Catholic and I'm, I'm studying covenants, I'm realizing my pastors barely skimmed the surface of it. So that was another one. Uh, the third thing was this, this language of being uh, anointed, walking in the anointing, baptized in the Holy Spirit. Th those were words that we always walked around with. And then I remember my pastor saying something like, one of my pastors saying something like, uh, anointing, you are like a battery, your anointing can leak. You know, so, so stuff like that. Oh, oh, oh. And one of my pastors, now I, I once did this and, and Matt told me that, my uh, fake Baptist accent is terrible. I was my... okay. I was going to lead up to this. If you weren't going to say it, I was going to ask you about it, uh, because this happens actually not just in Pentecostalism, but I think it happens especially in Pentecostalism. Yeah, yeah it does. So, so my pastors, I'm Malaysian, so they, they essentially sound like me. But uh, they, they they had come to the Southern Bible Belt to be schooled, and because of that, the people who trained them spoke in very thick Southern accents. And because of that, when they come back to Malaysia, as soon as they start preaching, they sound like Southern Baptist preachers. So I, I don't want to mention his name, but this is exactly what he would do. He'd say stuff like, and the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the gift of the Holy Spirit. Somebody say amen. And then the whole, the whole assembly would call me. <laughs> okay, Matt, stop it. I've improved. Uh, but but then you know the funny thing about it is that you told the story to me before is then like you know church would be over the switch would flip and he'd go back into like you know yep. a, a refined Malaysian king's <laughs> English you know so 
the oh, molasses had dripped off his southern accent. So, <laughs> absolutely, the, the switch flipped on for as long as he was on the pulpit, even That's when hilarious. he was praying. So after that, when he was praying for us, he'd go back to his original accent. <laughs> Something that only a, a fellow Pentecostal could understand. But you know, there are, it's, there are denominational commonalities in regard to that. Kenny, I wonder if you have anything. That's just like something that only, only a Pentecostal could possibly understand. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's uh, there's definitely insider language with with Pentecostals. Uh, it's part of the, and I, and I use all these words in in the most innocuous way that I that I could. That there is, a, I think, a subculture in in all traditions really where things just become familiar and they become the way that you talk, um, and so. You know, I learned early on similar words to Marcus, you know, anointing. Um, we, you know, we would use the word zapped if somebody got filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, at a midweek prayer meeting, we would say, oh, man, Leslie got zapped last night. And when we, you, you would imagine that what was happening was that she went forward. There's another, there's more language, went right. forward. Um, receive the Holy Spirit, baptized with the Holy Spirit, uh, anointed, you know, um, got her, she got her um, prayer language. The, these are all things that we would, mm -hmm. would say, and, and they make sense, you know, and I think they account for real uh, grace, you know, like things that God really is doing. And I've had a lot of people ask me since I be became Catholic, did, do I think any of that was real? <laughs> Yeah, of course I think it was real. Um, <laughs> I, I, what it was is disconnected in terms of my understanding of it from its true source, but it was still real. Like, like if I'm, if I'm at a river downstream, is that water just as real as the fountainhead? Sure it is, but I may not know where that is or where it came from, but it's still real. It's still real. You're still experience. getting wet. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, so the, whole, the so, Holy Spirit really was working in our lives, you know, in very real ways. Yeah, I want to talk about that fountainhead a little bit because in all this, like, um, there is no there is no perfect analogy here. But um, if you're just looking at aesthetics, like Pentecostalism is to the Catholic Church as like the WWE is to the Golf Channel, like it is, <laughs> like oh. It's like a completely different, like, aesthetic world. I wonder, like, in this time when you are, it is, it, you know, especially for you, Marcus, because you came from Catholicism, and obviously it didn't do the trick for you when you were a little kid. Like, what was it that you thought, like, when you're getting, like, this this wild and dynamic and, like, invigorating and energizing experience of Christianity, and you're looking over at the Catholic Church, like, what are you thinking about the Catholics? Oh, I thought nothing good about the Catholic Church. My pastors were feeding me. So during our private conversations, uh, we were being fed things like we have an obligation to go and evangelize, especially those idolatrous Catholics. And the reason for that is because, you know, the Catholic Church is the whole of Babylon that sits upon seven hills. And the seven hills are what they call the seven sacraments. So and, and that compounded with my own experience of the, uh, the Catholic Church, because growing up, I mean, you know, this is going to sound very judgmental, but it's true. The Catholics I knew were some of the worst catechized, but also some of the angriest people I'd ever met. And, you know, amongst my Catholic youth friends growing up, the the, the things that we did were, that were clearly just immoral, you know, like the underage drinking and smoking and whatnot, right? And <clears throat> it, it, it was amongst all of this that when I, when I encountered Pentecostalism and I met peers who were hopelessly in love with Jesus Christ, hopelessly on fire with the love of God by 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 the fire of the Holy Spirit, and wanted to proclaim him, I saw the stark difference. And in my mind, I made this conclusion that, therefore, the Catholic Church cannot be real. It must be this idolatrous man-made institution that is so detrimentally evil that it's destroying souls. And these people don't even care about it. So uh, yeah. that, that, that was my honest, genuine uh, experience of the Catholic Church back then. And so what I did was, in, in this misplaced zeal, I became very anti-Catholic. I remember sitting my mom down and my aunt using the Bible to tell them why they should stop praying the rosary. <laughs> which, which I mean, it's hilarious now because I'm a Catholic theologian, but uh, I, I just didn't think I'd get here, you know? And, and, and it was legitimate. It was this misplaced zeal, but it largely had to do with the fact that Catholics themselves were presenting a poor witness of what the faith truly stood for. It didn't help that bishops and priests were preaching syncretistic 
uh, views, you know, like all religions lead to the same source. And we're all climbing. I, I remember hearing this from the pulpit as a child, that all religions are climbing the same mountain from different areas and will all reach the same pinnacle point at the same time. Which, you know, as, as, as you would know, the, the document Faith and Enculturation that was published in 1988, uh, what was it, paragraph, uh, chapter 3, paragraph 2, uh, it states very, very clearly that while the effort of the church is uh, for, for the sake of evangelizing souls and inculturation serves that end, we are never to be given to syncretism. I didn't know that. So I just assumed that the Catholic Church was one idolatrous religion amongst many. Yeah, I mean, I remember hearing it as a Nazarene kid um, that it was just, it was, you know, basically aiming towards this one world religion, <laughs> right? Yep, I was reading all exactly. false stuff too, but Kenny... Oh, and the Pope is Antichrist. Experience? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I, again, I grew up in a non-religious home. Um, you know, we were, I call my family equal opportunity um, insult insulters, you know, at religious people, so Catholics... Anybody that basically walked across our scope was going to be made fun of for their religion. There's a lot of ignorance behind that. I didn't know anything about the difference between one religion or another. Maybe on the surface they dressed differently or looked differently in their in their worship experiences. But when I became a Christian, the, the person who shared that street gospel presentation with me was an ex-Catholic. Uh, he had left Catholicism. He became a friend of mine, and I would ask him, well, why aren't you Catholic anymore? Oh, they're not. He'd say "There's the, the gospel's not there in the Catholic Church. And then he had So wait, you're telling me you ran into the Utah version of Marcus Peter is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's what it he sounds was, like. He was an ex-Catholic who had gotten involved with the um, sort of the Jesus movement uh, expressions of North American evangelicalism and was doing short-term mission work. And so the person who first shared the gospel with me was fairly anti-Catholic. And then um, the, the church that I first ended up on staff at, the pastor was also an ex-Catholic. And, and attacking Catholicism was, it's kind of like the, like all it, like at Taco Bell, all the things have the same ingredients in them, right? So all of his sermons always had some anti-Catholic um, nuance right. in there or you know something was all like that's always in all of the dishes you know um, they got to throw that in there so I, and then I was listening to a lot of apologetics material because I was trying to share with another religious group well the person that I was listening to also had a lot of bad things to say about Catholics so very early on I was just suspicious of Catholicism um, and then I learned anti Catholicism from my mentors and the people that I trusted. And it just kind of became part of the way that I thought. And so, you know, tying that to the question of aesthetics, I had been to a mass here or there, a cousin's wedding or a funeral, or, you know, just go with somebody because they invite you. And it was so foreign to me as compared with the very um, loose kinds of structured gatherings that we had as Pentecostals, where there's a lot of freedom uh, to just kind of set up things the way that you want to, that all of it just looked like ritualism and ceremony to me that was divorced from anything spontaneous that the Holy Spirit might be doing. And the whole value of spontaneity is really something ingrained in the Pentecostal mind. It means that God is at work when things are perceived to be spontaneous. It means that it's dead if something is structured and has a sort of a, a pre-determined uh, sense of how things are going to go, um, that that's one of the ways for discerning where life and death are is how spontaneous it seems to be. And so when I would look at Catholic liturgy, for instance, I would just think, well, this is a relic of the past. It, there can't be any life here. Uh, there's just this is all dressed up with a bunch of ceremony. I don't understand it, and it maybe there's it, it's kind of like the paint can with the with the with the BB in it. There might be some Christianity rattling around in there, but I don't really know how to find it or where it is. And so it was just strange to me, and I was suspicious of it um, in in a lot of ways, especially in the early uh, days of my 33 years as a, as a Protestant. Uh, Pentecostal Christian. Okay, I have to be very careful about what I ask next. 
uh, because I have several places I could possibly go, but I don't want this to be a four-hour episode. So I have to be extremely careful about... Because you said three or four things that I would love to dig in on and, and get both of your, your takes on, but I think one of them has to do with that question of freedom. Because um, my last stop was Free Methodist Church, right? One of my last stops um, along the way, and, and freedom and worship was a big... It was one of the pillars of freedom that we, we talked about. And, mm-hmm. and I can remember all the time in the Church of the Nazarene, my pastor getting up and saying, you know... I had planned all week to preach on this thing, but this morning I felt like I got a word from the Lord and he steered me to Philippians. And this is, you know, like, there was like a, and when I heard that Catholics, like, you know, read from the same passage, no matter where they were, I'm like, but what if the Holy Spirit said something to like one of those priests? Like, we're not, we can't, we can't do anything with that. Um, at the same time, and, and this is where I, I want to steer things, um, there's a, that freedom thing is a double-edged sword. And I would talk about the question of authority. Um, I'll start with you, Marcus. Like, how do you, do you, do you think Pentecostals, sometimes maybe even without realizing it, are more hungry for the kind of stability the church offers, the Catholic church offers on the question of authority because of how much of a wild, wild west it can be if that freedom isn't, well, if the fire gets out of the fireplace, as the analogy so often is, is that you use right. the fire is great. You know, but if it's not, if it's in the living room, in the, in the middle of the living room, burning your house down, it's not good. If it's in the fireplace, it's it's good. Like, do you think that that's a hunger that's in Pentecostals sometimes, even if they can't put their finger on it? Oh, absolutely. Um, and and it, it was definitely there for me and that small group of friends whom I was journeying with at that time. Uh, and you remember me mentioning this. They, they've completely stopped talking to me because the most anti-Catholic of the bunch became Catholic. But the reason why I became Catholic was because the four of us were still looking for the truth. And we turned to our pastors for a lot of questions, but ultimately it became this, because we are sola scriptura, the Holy Spirit inspires each of us. But big questions, major questions, my my, my pastors completely disagreed on. You know, uh, uh, questions of uh, communion, whether or not whether or not to receive communion if, if you don't belong to the church. The second question was baptism, whether or not to be baptized. Well, in those scenarios, what my friends and I wound up doing was looking back into Scripture. And and you see in the the, uh, the earliest parts of John or in, even in the earliest parts of Luke, immediately after Jesus is baptized and he calls the apostles, what do they do? Well, they start baptizing. So then all of a sudden you realize, and, and then you take a look at Matthew twenty eight nineteen, 19. Uh, Jesus says very clearly, okay, go forth, proclaim the gospel, and then baptize them. In the name, and, and he gives the formula for baptism, which also scared me, by the way, because one of my pastors was baptizing in the name of Jesus. You know, I, I baptize Jesus you in the only, name of, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and that's then a I told strain that people may not realize. Yeah. Yep. And and I and it shocked me because I suddenly realized, wait, we we scripture alone. The Holy Spirit's inspiring us, but we scripture alone, and we're deviating from Jesus's own words in scripture. So those things filled me with anywhere from surprise to horror. And it was then that me and my friends realized, and it can't have just been us, because it was then that we realized that we needed something or someone to corroborate the truth, because clearly our interpretation was not enough. And that's why we kept turning to our pastors, who proclaimed to be some kind of absolute truth, until they disagreed. And when they disagreed, boy, did they disagree. And, and mm-hmm. you know, the, the conclusion was, well, the Holy Spirit speaking to us each in a different way. And that wasn't sufficient for us. So, you know, my pastor had no problems quoting anyone from Luther to Augustine, uh, although the Pentecostals are not really known for uh, immersion in the intellectual tradition. But Augustine seems to be, you know, a free-for-all claim for Protestants as well as Catholics. All Protestants claim Augustine in some way or another. So. Oh, uh, I mean, didn't you know Protestant was, uh, Augustine was basically early Luther? Yeah, he's, <laughs> a, he's a proto-Calvin, you know. Oh, proto-Calvin, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was also proto-Calvin. So. Yeah, so clearly this desire for a central authority upon whom we could fall back on for the sake of interpretation of the words in Scripture is a desired thing. And I honestly sometimes think, you know, one of my pastors, he was a former Catholic seminarian. And uh, I sometimes think that it's overreaction against anything remotely Catholic that forced my pastors and, and those in my Assemblies of God movements to fly as far away as possible from any form of authority. But the desire was definitely there for, for concrete. I mean, we all desire truth. Our intellects are made for objective truth. And and I, I know that that hunger was there in everyone else as well. Yeah. Kenny? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I, I definitely uh, see the tension between uh, freedom on one hand and authority and structure on the other. And I think anybody who's been inside of the, the Pentecostal family uh, and all of its cousins <laughs> for any length of time, you know, here's another Pentecostal phrase, I've seen it all. Um, <laughs> speaking in tongues, prophecy, uh, anointing, I've seen it all is another one. And you do get to the point where you've seen it all. You've seen every kind of um, expression, to use an innocuous word, uh, or um, you know, some kind of visible um, expression of something that's attributed to the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, you can fill in the blank. Last night I, you know, blank in the Spirit, and then you just put whatever the thing is that you did in there. And I've heard every word you can imagine uh, in there. And the longer you stay in that, some folks, I will include myself, will say, I just don't know. I, I, that doesn't seem right to me. Um, but within our Pentecostal worldview and our, the Pentecostal mind is shaped by this idea that God could tell you to do that and that it doesn't matter what anyone else says about it. If, if it's God telling you, then you just go with God. And this is very central to the way that Pentecostals tend to think about things. And so then when you get to this, well, but doesn't that seem wrong? Doesn't that actually seem maybe even heretical or an aberration of some kind? Well, there becomes an occasion for division, church splits, all kinds of problems within congregations um, or movements where the Holy Spirit is said to be doing something over here, this group disagrees with it, none of them can say for certain that this group is right and they're wrong or vice versa because there's no magisterial or teaching authority. Um, and so, the, you know, the, the, the big question, well, who says? Who says? Um, and, you know, for the Pentecostal charismatic um, person, the Holy Spirit says, is kind of the, the, the default position. So for me, and it wasn't because I was reacting against that disorder necessarily. I kind of lived with it. It was a reality. You just kind of find your tribe uh, inside of those um, groups. Um, but I really did come to believe, mostly through looking at the early Christians uh, in Scripture and in the years following, you know, in the apostolic age, that there really was a sense that there was a way things ought to be done, and that there was authority that came from Jesus to certain people in the church who were successors, you know, of the original apostles that could help sort through things when there was a dispute. And in in my traditions, you didn't have that. Uh, not in any universally authoritative way. You might have it within a denomination, a movement, or in a congregation, you know, whoever the pastor is. But you didn't have a real sense of authority that was universal. And if you said, you know, like Marcus said, well, the Bible or the Holy Spirit, well, it's anyone's game. It's anyone's game if that's what we're going to do. Because one of the things the Bible doesn't do is tell you how to interpret the Bible. Um, and so now, you know, we're, we're in a mess. So, yeah, it's messy. It's messy. <laughs> it's messy. Marcus, you look like it's you're about messy. to explode over there with something to say about that. So you know, just going off of what Kenny said earlier, when, when I was a Pentecostal, I came to realize very quickly that the most authoritative person in the church was the most charismatic pastor. The entire enterprise of Pentecostalism rested upon the shoulders of the most charismatic pastor, which meant the life of the church, the lifespan of the church, completely hinged upon the lifespan of the most charismatic pastor. And if his successor was unable to carry on that charismatic tradition in, in its very secular proper sense, you know, just, just being an enigmatic charismatic character, then the church died. The church died with him. So I came to realize very early on that People took to authority a, a, a kind of fervor. If he could win a crowd, he won. You know, it was all about the pathos. It was never about the logos. And that bugged the living daylights out of me. So I remember when 
I asked my pastor questions and you know, the stuff he was teaching was contradicting the stuff another pastor was teaching within the assemblies of God. And this was bugging me. So I asked him and, and my, my pastor looked at me and he did this Southern Baptist thing that to this day is ingrained in my memory. He, he, he you know, tilted his shoulders, looked at me and said, and you will come to know the truth and the truth will set you free. And that didn't help. I mean, I'm sorry, but right now the truth's making me mad. And, and, and I was, I really was so mad because that wasn't an answer. But, but, but he thought, he thought that I would, you know, I, I'd be one like that and I, I, I wasn't. So then I gave up on him and I went to the early church and I found out that I was told that scripture was the pillar and bulwark of the truth. I was told that scripture is, is the sole authority upon which we stand. Well, I turned to scripture and I found out in 1 Timothy 3.15, that the church has always taught that the pillar and bulwark of the truth is, as Paul writes, the church and not my most charismatic pastor. And it certainly wasn't scripture. So it, it was from there that I learned very, very early on that when it came to authority, the Holy Spirit had inspired a certain entity that I came to realize as the one holy Catholic and apostolic church with the authority of interpreting sacred scripture in a concrete, unambiguous, non willy-nilly manner, you know, just 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 as, as concretely as possible. And then I encountered the fathers and I realized that they all wrote with that same kind of concrete certitude and authority without, they, they just presumed that they had this authority and, and they preached it. And and I wanted that. I, I, I wanted to yield my life to the source of that authority. And you know that, yeah. just to connect to that a little bit, Marcus, one thing that I think actually helped me become Catholic was this belief in charism. And, and, and that was actually a big focus for my studies in seminary. I didn't go to a, a, a Pentecostal seminary. I went to a Mennonite seminary and I did a degree in New Testament, but I got to spend a lot of my time really kind of focused on the things that I felt were important. And I spent a lot of time in Acts and on, on charismatic and Pentecostal things. And one of the things that Pentecostals really believe in is that the Holy Spirit can do things and that he can anoint people to do certain things and that 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 anointing is powerful and effectual and that and that it that it's real and that it works. And so as I started looking at Catholicism and I started looking at questions of authority, charism or a spiritual gift attributing that to the the teaching office of the church to the leaders of the church to the the bishop of rome and all the bishops in communion with him to hear that they had a charism that they had a gift of the holy spirit um that would you know that you know let's say that a passive and active sense that that the, the the holy spirit would protect them on one hand from making certain mistakes and would lead them, on the other hand, from staying true to certain things. That was actually language that was really helpful to me. And even as I thought about how through the Catholic Church, the Holy Spirit brought about the canonization of Scripture, I'm like, well, as a Pentecostal, I can get with that. I mean, if the Holy Spirit can do all this stuff, then surely he would do it through the church that Jesus founded. I just didn't I didn't know that I could I could have that robust an understanding of of the Holy Spirit and his work in the leaders of of the church. So yeah, so um this leads me to the question that I was really trying to like bring the whole program to. So this may be the last words that I say today. Uh, but, uh, because of, of, of what I think is, is going to be opened here, because I remember going to my church, the Nazarene, my free Methodist church, any of the churches that I've been to, and you had a really great church, church service, even a chapel service at my college. And somebody would say, man, the whole Holy Spirit really showed up on Sunday. And I'm like, well, where was he on the third Sunday of April? Like, uh, you know, or, um, or, or we had church today. Like, well, what were we having last week, man? Um, but the the thing is, is that um, Pentecostals, when they gather, they expect the Holy Holy Spirit to show up. There's really only a couple other groups out there who, when they gather, they expect to invoke the Holy Spirit and for the Holy Spirit to show up. And one of those groups, the biggest group, the oldest group of that is the Catholics. Because every time, you know, 
the priest brings his hands down and says the word of consecration. He, he, there's an expectation that the Holy Spirit is showing up and doing something. It's a miracle happening. I mean, uh, the, the Pentecostals believe miracles still happen. So do the Catholics. So uh, I guess the launch point here is, um, you know, Kenny, you mentioned it, seeing the Holy Spirit alive and active in the church. Like, Marcus, how did you find that the Holy Spirit was alive and active even in that liturgy you thought was dead? So, you know, talking about the, the presence of the Holy Spirit, and, you know, Kenny commented on this really well. I think one of the things that we had a problem with within the Pentecostal churches was sometimes the Holy Spirit wouldn't show up. And, and this is what I mean. There were times when the Holy Spirit was supposedly working powerfully, and at the end of the service, everyone would go, oh, wow, the you know, Holy Spirit really showed up today, which meant, conversely, that last week or the next week, he probably wouldn't show up as much. And, you know, I, I, I share this story about uh, the, the, the holy laughter, as, as I've mentioned it before. But the point in all of this is I came to realize that in studying my way into the Catholic Church, that the, especially through the writings of the fathers and just the concrete certitude of the words of Jesus Christ, when the priest commits the epiclesis, when he says, and so, Father, we bring you these gifts, we ask you to make them holy by the power of the Holy Spirit, that they may become for us the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. I realized that he was speaking with an authority that wasn't his own. It wasn't hinged upon him. That means I didn't have to tune myself to a certain way to be able to, quote-unquote, tap into the force. You know? Like, like I, I didn't have to... Sorry, pardon the Star Wars pun there. I didn't have to be this conduit, this perfect conduit, and if I was out of sync, then the worship would be out of sync. No. The priest, ex opere operato, by means of his ministry by means of his ordination, was already conferred upon the capacity to call upon the Holy Spirit because it's the authority of sending the Holy Spirit is Christ's. And, and it was just that overwhelming realization that it's not about the priest. And it isn't about me or my disposition, which was wonderful to know. Because I didn't even have to show up in this extra holy headspace. I mean, let's face it, there are times when you and I go to Mass and, and we're not all together there and then... Uh, all of a sudden, Father starts preaching, and I'm like, I missed all the readings? But I've been sitting there the whole time, you know, just, just all of a sudden, where the readings go, you know? And, and stuff like that happens sometimes. But the beautiful thing is, my showing up, regardless of my disposition, doesn't change the objectivity of the sacramentality of the liturgy. And, and that's where I saw the power of the Holy Spirit work. The Holy Spirit wasn't contingent yeah. upon my frailty. He was going to operate with or without my capacity to be a conduit to it. And and that in, in in clarity made me realize that's a greater way of his working than being dependent upon me. Yeah, and I think, you know, connecting to what Marcus just said, you really are back to that word of charism or the charisma of the pastor, the gift of the pastor himself is often the great um, sort of hinge upon which the success or failure of a particular congregation hangs. And that is a great comfort as a Catholic that that really isn't true, um, that, it, that it really is the word of God that is driving um, the church forward, uh, and, and God the word, Jesus, driving the church forward through history, and that it doesn't, in, in a sense, it's not, a, it's not all on the pastor to be the guy, the anointed guy, uh, and, I, you know, I was in a tradition where being the anointed guy was really important. And if someone came along with more anointing than you had, you could be in big trouble. You know, your job could be uh, at stake. But, but uh, you know, in, in the Mass, in the liturgy of, of the Catholic Church, I would say that is the, the pinnacle of where you see the miraculous intervention of God in the life of his people, because there really is a true visitation of Jesus, the true answer to the um, promise, I will be with you even to the end of the age, is fulfilled, filled up to the full in the Mass. But uh, Catholics who are really engaged in their faith are going to be talking about and seeing and reporting on the activity of the Holy Spirit in every aspect of their lives. And I think, you know, for me, I started seeing that as I, as I continued walking with Jesus through the years, I began, as I got older, I began to meet Catholics that were really on fire 
in their faith. And I would listen to them and I'd say, Oh my goodness. Um, did something happen to you, you know, where you got in touch with, uh, something outside the Catholic church? Cause do Catholics talk like you? Oh yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. <laughs> Matt, I think I told you this, um, earlier this week, somebody emailed me and said, why don't we see more of the Holy Spirit at the mass? You know, and what this person was thinking about was tongues and prophecy and all this stuff. Why don't, and why don't we see more of the miracles of the Holy Spirit in the Catholic Church? And I just laughed. Like I laughed out loud when I read that because we have a department, you know, at the Vatican, their whole job every day. Hey, it's a new day. I'm going to go and follow up on all these miracles that have been reported around the world to us and see if they're real because they just keep happening every day all around you. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that's been asked to me by folks from congregations that we once pastored and people that I'm friends, friends with now is, have you given up on all of these convictions and even some of these practices, the spiritual language, prophecy, words from the Lord, all that. Have you given up on that? And I've said, no, not a bit, but I do something different now as a Catholic than I did before. I still embrace all of these things as legitimate, but I do them, and then I use two words, in communion. I do them in communion with my church, with the Catholic church, I don't do them by myself or in my own charism as though it's sort of floating out there, disconnected from the larger body of Christ. I do, and God works in me, in communion with the Bishop of Rome, with the bishops in communion with him, with my pastor, with our congregation, with my bishop. It's all done, but it's done in communion. And in communion with all those dead people, the saints, right? And in with communion the with all those guys exactly. too, which is mind and with blowing, the saints. right? I mean, you think the holy the Holy Spirit is the juice that connects this yeah. whole thing, not even around the world, but also across time and across like dimensions into the church triumphant and into the church. It's it's a mind blowing thing, um, Marcus. You were gonna, you were going to add something. So one of the things I very quickly, and you know, Kenny commented on this really, really beautifully, but, and, and he echoes exactly what my experience was. I realized very quickly that in the Pentecostal spheres, it's all about what's new, what's fresh. How is the Holy Spirit speaking right now? Which on the one hand is wonderful, but on the other hand is problematic because it lends itself to a real sense of Gnosticism. See, the Pentecostal movement is only, what, a little over 200 years old? So what do we presuppose that prior to this, the Holy Spirit has not been working in a fresh, new way? See, in order for the assemblies of God to function, they must automatically presuppose that no other work of the Holy Spirit prior to this was valid in its strictest sense. And therein lies the problem. When I came to realize that the intellectual tradition of the church, the liturgical tradition of the church, the sacramental tradition of the church was all the Holy Spirit moving alive and active. And he's been speaking consistently for 2,000 years. I came to realize that I didn't have the authority to negate what he had done before. Instead, everything that he's doing today is building upon what he's done before, which then brings about another issue. In Pentecostalism, there's this real sense of voluntarism. The Holy Spirit can kind of change his mind about certain things. You know, like, he'll prophesy this one day, you know, like, oh, Jesus is coming, the end of the world is today. And then everyone will, you know, pray towards it and prepare for it and sell everything they own. And then, I guess the Holy Spirit changed his mind, because Jesus didn't come. But then I came to realize that in Catholicism, God's will and the objectivity of reason are not, juxt are not at odds to each other. In fact, if anything, they're incongruent, which simply means that the Holy Spirit is not contradicting himself. He continues to reveal himself in the church and in the sacraments and in the voice of the magisterium and in the voice of sacred scripture as he has been for the past 2,000 years. That was the greater assurance. That's why I keep telling everyone as a preacher now in the Catholic sphere, I love the fact that for the past, how old am I now? I'm 34 I became Catholic when I was 22, so 12 years. For the past 12 years, I don't have to invent anything. Nothing I preach is original, and you, you know this, Matt, like you heard me preach, and you, you probably go off saying, well, that was unoriginal. But, <laughs> and, and you know what, that's probably going to be on my tombstone. He did nothing original. And that's fine. 
Because all I do is I echo what the Holy Spirit has taught us for 2,000 years. When I was a Pentecostal preacher, the onus was on me to create this new spin of the gospel every single time I preached. And it was about how creative I was. And if I ran out of creative juices, well, what? The Holy Spirit didn't show up. So, so that, that, that's why I came to realize that he has been speaking. My job isn't to presuppose that I am this unique conduit over and above everyone else, but my job is to yield myself to how he's been speaking for 2,000 years. That, that's why he's working in a far clearer, truer way within the magisterial voice of the Catholic Church than he is in any Pentecostal sphere in the world. Yeah, I, I, uh, I found, you know, people struggle with transubstantiation and the epiclesis, which is Catholic language for when the, when the priest imposes hands over and prays over the uh, elements, uh, the, the sacraments, the bread and wine, and they become, they become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. People say, how can you believe that? And I, like, part of my answer is, well, I was Pentecostal. Like, one of the things we're known for is naming it and claiming it. Not that I wholly, wholly believed in that, but that we, like, we had this theology that we, that really is connected to, uh, probably the closest thing in our culture would be like the speech act theory, right? That you could say you something. Speaking truth you, over something. Yeah. And you change your reality. Like a, a speech act happened to me on the day that I got married. The pastor who officiated our wedding said, I now pronounce you man and wife. And I mean, I walked in that place a bachelor, but I walked out a married man and no microscope was going to tell you anything about that. Like something real, um, a, a real ontological substantive change happened to me by virtue of a speech act. But let's see, my Pentecostal theology, my Pentecostal formation made it possible for me to imagine that God could work in that way and that it could be beyond my my senses, you know. Uh, and so I, I don't think there's a great leap between being Pentecostal and being Catholic. I, like some things are, you know, like the distance between one end of a, a line and the other, like that's pretty far away. But Pentecostal and charismatic is more more like this. It's more like like a horseshoe. <laughs> <laughs> things are things are a lot closer. Things are a shockingly lot closer. closer. As a matter of fact, there's a video. I, I, I would encourage people to go uh, check out. It's one of our deep in history talks. And I'll put a link to it in the notes that uh, Paul Thigpen did a number of years ago. Uh, and his talk was basically like the road from Topeka to Rome, and it was all about like why he thinks that Pentecostals are uh, uniquely disposed among all kinds of Christians to be kind of to have this this sense of what the Catholic Church is. Uh, right. And he's got all kinds of ways, uh, even down to the idea of relics, right? And like the the way that uh, Pentecostals will, you know, believe that you can, you know, pray over something and it's now sort of dedicated in like a in a specific kind of way. So there's all that, and I'm looking Paul's at the clock. Paul's hankies in the book. Of Paul's Acts. handkerchiefs, <laughs> you know. Um, Paul's shadow. Uh, so I I want to make sure that we get this in before we before we wrap it up, and, and that is. If there's a Pentecostal who's watching this far, <laughs> right? First of all, thank you. You're very bold and brave. Um, but it's probably because you've sensed some of the things that Kenny, you were mentioning and Marcus, you were mentioning where you love so many of the things that you experienced. You're so grateful so, for so many of the experiences you had along the way, but you feel like there's like a thing there that's not, it's not, you haven't gotten it answered yet. And I wonder, um, we'll start with you, Kenny. Uh, what was, what would you say to someone who's, gotten this far is about this much curious about the catholic church but it's coming from a pentecostal background and that's the way that they've been formed to look at everything yeah i would say i mean there's a million things i could say but i was talking to a pentecostal uh, pastor the other day he lives in another state was asking me the same thing and he felt like there was this tug tug on him to investigate the catholic church uh, it may be what made you click this video, if that's you right now. And I would say, look, my Pentecostal friend, you have learned how to listen to the Holy Spirit. It's part of the way you're shaped. It's part of the way you're formed. It's part of what you value. Um, the Holy Spirit that was speaking to you about all of these other things that you've experienced and tried to follow and listen to, he is still speaking to you. If you you are being 
called, you feel the sense that the Holy Spirit is saying, you know, look again. Maybe you didn't look right the last time. Listen to the Holy Spirit, you know, listen to the promptings of the Holy Spirit and listen to the church that the Holy Spirit uh, has been um, leading and guiding through history. And uh, just listen, just listen, let the Holy Spirit do his good work in you. Marcus? You know, to build on what Kenny said in response earlier, I want to I wanna encourage once again for us to understand the Holy Spirit has been speaking for 2,000 years. And precisely because of that, he who is speaking to you now is compelling you to the full wealth and riches of all that he has revealed in divine revelation, all that he has revealed in engaging the full reason of the human capacity and granting us the grace to be elevated to contemplate greater mysteries of the faith. I urge you, don't stop where you are. Keep asking the questions. And as you keep asking the questions, go back and find the answers. Keep seeking, keep penetrating the mystery. Because I tell you this, the Holy Spirit is a spirit of order and a spirit of clarity. And he's here to remind us of everything Jesus has taught us. In him we live and move and have our being. By the way, that's Greek philosophy that Paul was applying. But besides the point, in him we live and move and have our being. And because of that, he has granted us the capacity to not only live, but to move our intellects and our wills to comprehend and apprehend mysteries that are true of him. So as we keep diving, we're going to realize that the deeper we go into the early church, the deeper we go into how the Holy Spirit worked 2,000 years ago and the way he's working now, there is no other place that he's working in the same consistency and power and might and magnitude as in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So if you've been listening thus far, I challenge you as the Holy Spirit challenged me, seek the full picture. And if you have complaints against the Catholic Church, which I did, I was supremely anti-Catholic, cha challenge yourself to study that which you attack. Challenge yourself to investigate what the Church really teaches about those things. And as you keep reading, you'll come to realize that not only are they completely biblical, they're completely spiritual, because they correspond to the same deposit of faith that Jesus Christ himself has handed down. Amen. Yeah, just as you would see an imbalance or an, even an abuse in, even in a well-meaning person, whether it's ignorance or just you know they're, they're completely wayward, you've you've learned you've learned as a Pentecostal how to wade through that stuff. You won't you won't have to stop doing that if you become Catholic. But the fullness of all that the Holy Spirit has made available to the Church is still here, always has been, and always will be in the Catholic Church. That's pretty good stuff. So my guess is that if you waited through all of this and you still have a bunch of questions, you probably like to talk to Kenny and, and Marcus about their things. Uh, you could find Kenny through the Coming Home Network, uh, chnetwork.org. And uh, he, of course, is development director, so he'd be mad if I didn't say that you can also click the donate button while you're there and make sure that we're able to continue to do content uh, much like this. Marcus, you're with the St. Peter Institute, uh, which has all kinds of great resources, and you go around giving talks and stuff. And and I know that if people contact you through that, right, they can they can ask any follow-up questions about Pentecostalism and Catholicism, right? Absolutely. And uh, so the St. Peter Institute, th there's a form there that you can just fill in, and it kicks an email to me so I can respond to that immediately. Uh, alternatively, you can contact me on AveMariaRadio.net, everything spelled out, AveMariaRadio.net. Uh, there's a form there to get in touch with me as well. Good stuff. And we'll have links to all these things uh, in the show notes here at the bottom of CH Network Presents, where we try and be nicer to Protestants than anything else in the world of Catholic media. And hopefully that's come across here uh, a little bit today. Uh, Kenny Burchard, Marcus Peter, uh, I'm so glad that you guys agreed to this, and I'm so glad you guys now got to meet each other. And uh, I can only yeah, imagine that this terrific. is the first of many very lengthy conversations that have about 30 false endings before they're actually over. So thank you guys both. You know, it's an, it's been an honor. It was great talking to you, Kenny, and it was wonderful talking to you as always, Matt, and I look forward to working with you in the future as well. All right, and thank you for listening to CH Network Presents. You can find all of our episodes through the Coming Home Network and the links in the show notes. I'm Matt Swaim. Have a wonderful day, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you.